Welcome to the Practice of Being from Present Tense Media. In this series, inspired by my new awareness practice book of the same name, I interview visionary leaders, exploring their commitment and passion. I'm Ann Markham Bailey, poet, author, awareness educator, and host of The Practice of Being. In this episode, I talk with Esther Song, co-owner of Roadrunner Bags in LA, and a bicycle advocate who was recently highlighted as a champion of the community. In full disclosure, during college, Esther was on staff as a graphic artist at my former print company. Later, I came to learn that she was also part of a community of friends that included my son. My admiration for Esther is deep and wide. In a world of humans clamoring for attention, Esther eschews social media, preferring direct and authentic relationship. So get ready to meet a human being whose heart and head align in a most beautiful and inspiring manner. Also, look in the show notes for links to see some of Esther's award-winning photos, to check out the very cool bike bags made at Roadrunner's facility in Los Angeles, and to learn more about the Practice of Being book, the companion online course, and the forest bathing programs that I offer. Can you hear me all right? Okay. Yes. I wanted to create a, a series uh, on present tense podcast that goes, that sort of spins off the book and interview different people who are manifesting, you know, with the power of the universe. And that isn't, I'm not talking about just like worldly success necessarily, but rather um, the force of being. And to me, you're one of those people. Oh, thank you for thinking of me in that, in that realm. I'm really uh, flattered and honored. Well, I've always thought of you that way. And so when I was thinking about different people I could interview for this, you were one of the people who came to my mind. So, um, Esther, I was wondering if you could just start with talking a little bit about your family and, you know, one of the last artistic projects I saw from you was that amazing, the amazing portraits of your grandmother's church. Yeah, so um, just a little bit of my background, you know, um, my parents are originally from South Korea and um, my grandmother, my dad's mother moved here um, when in her like late 20s, early 30s with a, a, an American soldier and um, which was my dad's um, stepfather and my dad moved here in his like early to mid twenties and through um, mutual family friends. That's how my, my parents um, got connected and they actually met on their wedding day. <laughs> so it was like an arranged marriage, but they're still married to this day. And I feel like, you know, they you know, whatever strengths or weaknesses they have, they kind of um, balance each other out with, with that. And, um, yeah, and I feel very fortunate for the upbringing that my parents gave me. And my parents always have some regret that they could have done better. But, you know, I, I feel like they've lived the American dream in a lot of different ways with starting with you know, absolutely nothing. And, you know, even no support from my um, grandmother, um, they, 
you know, started with nothing and was able to raise, you know, my brother and I by, by working a gas station. (laughs) And I have really vivid memories of like my parents, you know, um, carrying me into the gas station, like before the sun was like, just as the sun was peaking, like at 4am and being carried to the back and, um, you know, having like a makeshift, like, bed it was just like a mat <laughs> to you know lay us down until um, we woke up later in the morning but you know I know that they've really worked hard to get to where they are because they ran that gas, gas station from like 4 a.m to 12 a.m and you know those are just you know I, I feel very very grateful for everything that my parents have done to like support me in that way it's big yeah, being a gas station kid, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm sure my brother and I, I know for sure that my brother and I were a handful because we're running all over that gas station, up and down the aisles and, and you know, always getting into fights. <laughs> and, you know, uh, my parents, you know, they they really ingrained a lot of really good values in me in a lot of way because, you know, in a way that my parents, you know, uh, had us to help around the gas station. Like, I have these memories of, like, you know, the, specifically the technique <laughs> of, like, creating these six-packs because they would, like, get, like, these huge cases of, like, um, of just, like, 12 ounce canned beverages and we would make six packs out of them with the six packs rings, <laughs> um, you know, using like a price gun to like go around and let, you know, price everything out around the store and, you know, working the register, you know, how cute is it when like a kid is like ringing up at the, at the register. <laughs> right? <laughs> but, you know, I know my parents sacrificed a lot because, you know, they've, um, been robbed a number of times and you know even like at gunpoint and my mom like you know my dad has always told her you know, like you know nothing's worth your life but you know my mom's like pretty darn stubborn and <laughs> has like stood her ground even being like faced at gunpoint and um and you know I'm so grateful that my parents are still alive to this day uh, despite you know all these um physical altercations that they've like overcome like being in the south running a gas station with those hours and raising a family <laughs> and what what caused them to be in the south i just went in a it's a it's a place where there's not a very large korean community so my step grandfather um pete he um uh, he uh, was in the army and that's how he met my um grandmother during the korean war and um what brought him to huntsville was the redstone arsenal where there's an army base there and um that's what brought them specifically to huntsville alabama that's also what brought my family to alabama my father was drafted just after he finished his MBA at University of Michigan. He was drafted um, at the tail end of the Korean War and had to go to Huntsville to, um, to work at the Redstone Arsenal. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, I feel like a lot of people like are surprised by a lot of the industry in Alabama, you know, and I think Huntsville is like a pretty big one industry. And um, in consideration of the Redstone Arsenal, the Space and Rocket Center, and, you know, with all the car, car manufacturing that's going over there, and then now like the FBI, like headquarters is going to be moving there. So, um, Whoa. yeah, it's... <laughs> it's every time I go back, it's uh, something's always different. That's really kind of amazing that um, I hadn't really thought about the fact that both of our families were brought to Alabama by the Redstone (laughs) Arsenal. 
Yeah, that is really funny. Yeah, definitely. You know, because my family was from the North, we had no Southern United States cultural habits. We didn't eat that food. We didn't really speak that language. I remember people at my school really laughing at me, not in a mean way, but in a way because I was different at my pronunciation. Like we went to the state fair and my friend's parents asked what was my favorite thing. And I told her it was the whorehouse because we pronounced H-O-R-R-O-R as horror, <laughs> not har. And they thought I was saying W-H-O-R-E. <laughs> and so I remember being in their car and they were just laughing and laughing. And I never, it was much later when I figured out, oh, that's why they were laughing. But <laughs> what they didn't correct they're like you know explain why they were laughing <laughs> so um oh my gosh you know i love yeah. that you're you've got this vibrant business that y'all are running but can you tell us a little bit about your path to get there thinking about the work you were doing in New York and then your move out to LA. Yeah. So, um, I think it all kind of started with, I've always ridden a bicycle, you know, like I rode my bike to school, you know, after school, you know, I'd like ride bikes with my friends out in the woods and just go explore. And so, and I've always been like a bit of a tinker. So I think a little bit of all those elements, um, kind of brought my interest in what I do now. Um, and um, while, and I've always had an interest in sewing, like, you know, when I was young, I've always wanted to like get into fashion design, but you know, that was kind of an industry that as I got older, I was like um, less interested in because of, you know, the perpetuation of like overseas manufacturing. And uh, my first job when I moved out of Alabama was um, sewing the NYPD winter hats in the Bronx. And I was, (laughs) yeah, super random. But (laughs) Um, uh, this, I worked for this Korean man who's had the commission with the NYPD for over 30 years um, producing their winter hats. And, um, in 2013, when I started working with him, it was um, him, a Korean woman, and um, another guy, and then me. So it was the four of us working, um, just sewing. So uh, the Korean man, he would stack cut, and the rest of us would sew all of the pieces. And so I was, you know, this is dead of winter. And a factory in the Bronx in 20 degrees, like winter with like just with no, no heating except for maybe a little space heater and the whole entire floor <laughs> of the space. <laughs> and so we're just, you know, eight hours a day just cranking out, um, you know, pieces of the hat. I was sewing like 500 liners a day, you know, uh, the uh, the a Korean woman, she like give me a stack of of uh, patterns, and I was just like, okay, you got to finish this before you leave today. <laughs> and you know, I learned to really meditate during that time because you can get really stuck in your head doing you know repetitive, monotonous tasks. And um, yeah, and I think um, it's it's taught me how to be very present in the moment and being okay with what, you know, what I'm doing, even uh, with anything. And it was a valuable lesson to me because um, I was able to like find my inner peace while also um, honing in my, my skill, my skill sets. And, um, yeah, so within that 
background of production sewing. I really um, got good at sewing as well as understanding uh, a manufacturing perspective on like a, on like with that capacity. Cause you know, we're producing all the winter hats for the whole entire NYPD <laughs> during that time, you know? And um, yeah. And so applying uh, my time and experience there, um, I I look back on it with what I'm doing today because we do all of our production in-house in downtown L.A. Um, and, um, yeah, I think there's a lot that kind of led me to, um, to what I'm doing now. So, you know, I... Apart from just riding bikes, you know, there's, I think one of the trickiest things is figuring out how to carry, carry your things on the bike, you know? And so, um, being able to figure out carrying solutions is, you know, it takes, I think some of the best ideas come from the bike. And when you're on the bike, you're always, you know, I think it's the gears turning, whether, you know, personally, of course, we're talking about, you know, carrying capacity on the bike. But I think even with Einstein, Einstein's like, you know, I thought of that on my bike, whether I think it applies to a lot of different things in, in like someone's life. So at what point did you decide to leave New York and um, move out to LA? Were you, did Brad, did Brad already have the shop going? Yeah. So um, Brad uh, started Roadrunner Bags and um, when he was, 19 years old <laughs> so you know he's uh i've known him since he was 18 and i met him in alabama actually um he lived there for a brief moment of time but um we were always friends and we've always stayed connected and um i was actually visiting la um of because my cousin was getting married out here and I was just visiting a bunch of uh, different friends that I had out here, um, during that time also. And, uh, of course, like my brother and I were, um, we, uh, had made plans to, um, hang out with Brad and, and, and Brad at that time was living and working, um, in the same space, like, um, um, you know, riding bikes, making bags. And while I was there, you know, I was just like, I I had sewing skills. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, during the day he's working. And so, you know, although like I'm on uh, vacation, I'm, I'm like not someone to just like stand around watching people work. <laughs> and so I was like, do you need help? Like, what can I do? <laughs> you know, I can sew. <laughs> and so I was like cutting and sewing some stuff just, you know, on the side and it was like a really small operation because it was Brad, um, Ashley, Juan, and Brad's cousin, Justin, during that time. And that was the core group for, for like two to three years, really. Um, and Juan and Ashley actually are still part of Roadrunner Bags. And they are like, you know... They're just some of the most amazing people I've met and the most hardworking and talented people. And I feel very fortunate to, you know, work with some of the most like amazing, amazing people that like continue to inspire me as well. Because, you know, um, one, he was a messenger, a bike messenger in downtown. He would like deliver alcohol for this company. and. Um, and I think it's like, you know, it's not easy work. And I have so much respect for, um, you know, messengers out there because it's, it's, it's the grind. And especially working at the hours that um, being like a specifically like a um, messenger delivering alcohol, <laughs> you know, you, you encounter a lot of different types of characters, you know, at all hours. and um, and yeah, it's the hustle. So I have so much respect for them. So at what point did you decide that vacation was going to turn into moving out there? <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good question. Um, 
I don't know. I could see the potential that what from my background that I've had, because I've, um, you know, uh, m- pretty much like the majority of the jobs I've ever had was for working for small companies, you know, you know, yep, exactly with <laughs> Mark and Bailey, you know, uh, I, I absolutely loved working at Mark and Bailey because it was like a really great work environment. And, you know, there was a level of creativity involved. And, you know, I think being able to work well together with the people that you work with, you know, uh, makes, makes just like such a amazing work environment that can be carried on, like, not with not only in the present, but in the future as well. And I, I really do carry carry that with me to this day. And I appreciate having met you and, you know, maintaining like a friendship with you after working with you. And um, I and I have so much more like, you know, respect for you and like looking back with and I I, I <laughs> have learned so much from you as well. and. Um, and including, and I've also worked for small businesses that are women led as well. Because after um, my last job in New York City before I left was I was working at a ceramic studio, um, and my uh, my boss Nadej, she's she um, started this ceramic studio and has like created like an amazing community out in Brooklyn. And, uh, I, I've, you know, I have so much admiration for her also because it is not easy, like running a, a ceramic studio on that level in like such a big city where there's so much interest for that. Um, so at some point you made the decision to move out to LA. Did you immediately, did you go out there with the intention of staying with the business or buying into the business of Roadrunner? Or? Not at all. Actually, it's just, you know, being young and just taking wherever the wind takes me really. And I feel very lucky that, you know, I, I make some pretty brash decisions sometimes. And um, I'm, like a pretty adaptable person because um i um i kind of like and i don't know if i really pride myself in this but i'm like someone that's not the best at anything but i'm pretty darn good at a lot of things so and i think that's just kind of like with my mindset of like of i i never think i can't do anything i always like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna try try my darnest and see what happens <laughs> And so I think that persistence has kind of um, kind of led me to where I am. And even though like out of a whim of, you know, picking up and leaving New York City to move out here because um, I, I, you know, I saw the potential of a small business becoming so much more. And I saw the people and that make the company and and to this day i really do believe that people make a company and a company would be nowhere without its people you know and um and yeah so i moved out here out of a whim of just like wanting to try something new um and it was really hard for me to live leave new york as the same way i thought it was hard to leave alabama because you know there's like some level of comfort that you have after living somewhere for a while and you know building all these connections and people that you've grown to love and care about and you know um just picking up and moving somewhere you know it's hard but you know i'm i'm grateful that i've maintained a lot of um you know these connections that i've I've made throughout the years and and yeah and so moving out to LA it was just you know I moved into the shop so Brad and I you know um we we were living in the shop for for you know for three years before we were able to um separate our personal and workspace and um and I think that 
it was kind of a necessity at that point in our lives because, you know, it's hard to um, clock in and out when you're always at work. <laughs> and, you know, I still carry that, even though that there's some separate spaces within the workspace and my personal living space now. Um, it's It's hard to turn it off, you know. Because there's always something to do and I feel very like the weight of the responsibility of like, you know, everyone relying on, on us to, to, you know, provide like a good workspace and have, and having a workspace for them to, um, to make a living in. That's great. And so, um, in terms of the business, How's it? How are the on the sales side? Are you who? Who are you really selling to? So um, you know, it all started with like on an individual basis. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I, I see how a lot of our success comes from organically growing, not growing too fast, um, and a lot of that has to do with word of mouth. You know, we put a lot of care into the products that we make, you know, from cutting to sewing, like everything is like, you know, everyone is so skilled at what they do, where like, like very little passes by us. And even like a small like defect, it's just like, you know, it's not passable for us. Like no one would even notice, you know, some of these defects that we, you know, we put aside and and correct. Um, but you know, our standards are really, really high because we want to produce the best possible products out there for like the best customers. I truly believe we do have the best customers because we hardly have anyone like complain or bring like really negative energy towards us. Um, because we truly care about people who are, you know, enthusiastic with what we do and the products that we make. And we want to like maintain like a really good relationship with everyone that we do business with. And that includes uh, individual customers and um, to our wholesalers who are essentially bike shops. And so um, bike shops are, you know, I think they're a core of the community, especially like neighborhood communities where they like create an essential service for like mobility options. And I love that we work with um, other small businesses as a small business to be able to, you know, uplift each other in that way. That's really great. And so for you, when did, um, when did you start moving more into advocacy? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I've always kind of done it unknowingly um, because I, you know, you just meet people. And, you know, especially when you're a bike commuter and, you know, L.A.'s, uh, <laughs> it's a wild world out there on the bike. Um, you know, L.A. is a very car centric city. Everyone, you know, everyone drives every, you know, people are very car centric and people are like very obsessed with, you know, their cars and there's and car culture. And so. When you put so much value on these objects, like the car, you, um, you know, your value for human life, you know, is, is skewed. And, and so, um, commuting on the bike, you know, every day to work, it's, it gets exhausting because, you know, you, like every day there is a circumstance where someone like nearly hits you or there's an altercation. And a lot, and the funny thing is a lot of times you're just going to be like meeting them at the red light. (laughs) And I'm not the kind of person like, you know, to, to let things slide like that. And, you know, I know it could get me into like, um, uh, some dangerous situations, but you know, uh, (laughs) It's just within my personality to say something than nothing. And I would, you know, roll up to them at the red light and just like, look at them. (laughs) And it's just funny because it's like, okay, so you, you know, nearly kill me, but you can't look me in the eye. (laughs) 
and so I'll like knock on their window and like you know I I fully you know fighting fire with fire never gets you anywhere because people don't want to be told what to do right and so a lot of times I'll knock on their window with a smile and then I'm just like you know roll down your window <laughs> you know I point down <laughs> roll down your window so and they'll sometimes if they're a lot of people are reluctant to do so but some people have rolled down their window and you know I'm just like you know I I approach them. I'm trying to like kill kill it with kindness, and you know, he's like, "Did you not see me back there? You know, like, we're why are you such in a, such a big hurry when we're at this red light together? You know, and some most of the times people aren't willing to listen, but at least like you know, at least I tried, you know, and I have this whole um, after like so many circumstances of like trying to put your two cents in. I kind of had I came up with the phrase. Um, Hit your brakes, not people. And it's like a quick way of just like trying to get to the point like, like you're human, I'm human. Let's just try and get to where we're trying to go, like, you know, in one piece with, you know. Um, and, you know, sometimes that message can um, hit a little deeper because it's just, it's, it's quick and it's not preachy, you know. Um, yeah. And so a lot of the advocacy just comes from personal experience of, um, you know, it's this isn't a, a fun or a safe um, city to to ride bikes in because you are putting yourself at risk a lot of the times and drivers um, aren't mindful of it. And so a lot of the advocacy works is working with or, uh, other uh, advocacy. Um, bicycle advocacy organizations that um that do this and like one of the um organizations that we've had like a long time partnership with is the uh, los angeles bicycle coalition uh, lacbc and um they they do a lot of really great advocacy within la city and you know i um work together with a lot of other organizations like people mobility justice and um, even places that aren't um, in, in LA, there's um, some organizations in San Francisco and in the Bay area um, that we, um, we donate to for their annual fundraisers. And right now I'm working with a, a organization called uh, cycle for change. They uh, work, they, work with um, um, youth in the uh, East Bay where they uh, provide bicycle education. And so we're creating these little tool roles for them to provide like a basic toolkit for, um, for the students to take away, take something like physically away from um, their lessons and apply it to, to you know, their, their everyday bike riding. So question, um, do you think that having bike lanes is safe? So I think that is um, one piece of the puzzle. Um, Infrastructure is really huge. For instance, there weren't any bike lanes um, in these like main streets in downtown. And they... um, implemented a bike lane but there weren't any delineators or any like physical barriers to separate cars from um entering into the bike lane so it just becomes another lane of of car traffic as well as parking you know and um and then just uh like two years ago they um created like a physical barrier where um where i think not only bike lanes, but how the bike lanes are implemented. For instance, if the bike lane, if there's, there's like, you know, these, all these different studies and different um, methods of how to um, uh, implement a bike lane in existing streets. And so um, typically how, people will, uh, the city will just implement bike lanes is they'll remove a lane and then, uh, or parking to implement a bike lane. 
Um, I think that is, it's good that they're mindful that, you know, um, there needs to be a designated lane for people outside of the cars, whether it's for uh, cyclists or, you know, or pedestrians or ADA. It's, I think, you know, all users need to be considered and how they interact in the same uh, and shared spaces. And, um, and so if you just put a bike lane and then have tra- uh, parking still on the curb. So you have the lane of traffic and then you have the bike lane and then you have parking against the curb where the meter is. I think that creates a lot more conflict with all of the users because people are trying to, you, you know, um, use the bike lane, but they're um, getting cut off when cars are trying to park. And so these, I think there needs to be a lot more um, foresight when you know you're going through all this trouble to create this infrastructure but if the infrastructure is not working in the long run then you're creating a lot more user conflict and a lot of the times people are like get rid of this bike lane it's not doing us any good you know so i think you know we do need a lot more um people who are experienced outside of the car to have input um with the infrastructure that's going to be implemented. And um, so I'm also, um, I volunteer and am part of the Safe Streets Committee um, of my town council. And and because it's, it's just really funny because, you know, even in unincorporated LA County, you know, we don't have a lot of the funding, but there's also just like a lot, not a lot of infrastructure that's implemented. And so in a way, I think like we as um, people in the community are able to do is like have a voice of like what, how we see our neighborhoods and how it can change for the better for people who are not only live here, but visit here. And, you know, I live close to the Angeles National Forest and there's just a lot of people who come and visit the forest and, um, you know, people come here, you know, by car on the bike, you know, walking and there's also equestrians. And so there's a lot of different users, but we don't have sidewalks, (laughs) you know, and that's like a very basic thing that you would think when people are just trying to walk to the trails. Right. And, um, you know, a lot, there's a lot of advocacy groups to, um, that try and work with our town council that then work with our other, you know, it's honestly like jumping through the right hoops and trying to connect, you know, all these people and that's involved in the city, um, to, you know, push infrastructure in the right direction that is, you know, that would better the community. Um, whether you live here or not, or just visiting here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, such an interesting question <clears throat> as to why Americans are so hostile. So many Americans are actively hostile towards people mm-hmm. on bicycles. And it's something I don't understand instead of like embracing it and incorporating it as part of the culture. So many people, I experience people just being really hostile towards bike riders. Yeah. And that's just like a lot of it has to do with their, what they value. A lot of people value their cars. Um, and, you know, it's very like egocentric. But, you know, we, we in the U.S., you know, we are dominated by the oil and car industry. And, you know, these people, you know, all these representatives, you know, people, you know, politicians get bought out and they're not looking out for the, they're, you know, there's people who actually live here, you know, I know like money talks, but, you know, in a sense, like it's kind of skewed the, the, uh, the values of the people as well. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> it, it, it is a shame that a lot of people can't see that. And it's, I think it's just kind of ingrained in our culture and it's just become normal. Um, every for everyone to drive. Like when you turn like fifteen or sixteen, the whole big thing is like to get your license, right? And you know, Brad, um, he 
didn't get his driver's license until he was like maybe like 23 years old because <laughs> you know he uh you know when he moved to alabama he was he moved in with his grandparents and they had just moved to coleman alabama and you know very small town and you know he got bullied a lot because he had like long hair and you know he, he really stuck out and like you know, a, a small southern town where, you know, where he's not super, like, quote-unquote, masculine, you know, hyper-masculine. And he drove, like, since he didn't have a driver's license, he either rode his bike or, like, drove around a little scooter. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, it just kind of shows people's mentality of like oh you're not cool because you don't have a car you know like even the band kids would spit on his moped or his scooter (laughs) yeah (laughs) so what do you feel like is your biggest um achievement in that realm um you know i think there's um if there's any movement with in consideration of other users outside of the car, I think that's something to celebrate. Like for instance, um, at the end of the street that I live on, um, where there's a park, um, there's a, there's a crosswalk, but there's parking on both sides of the street. So it becomes a blind section where people are, are incapable of using the crosswalk because drivers can't see when pedestrians are waiting to cross. And, um, uh, in response to COVID and social distancing and all that, the, um, the, the city had implemented a, a temporary, um, multi-use lane. And so they pulled parking on one side of the street. They're still parking (laughs) on the other side of the street and all the way down all the streets. Um, and there's also parking lots for the, um, for the park and there's a staging center for the equestrian. So there's plenty of parking. Um, but they removed parking on one side of the street to, um, open up the sidewalk. So it was like considered like an extended sidewalk. Um, so that there's, there's more visibility, um, on at least one side of the crosswalk for people who are trying to enter one side of the park to the other. Um, and there was a lot of pushback from the community because they felt like their, their public parking was being taken away from, but the streets are just so open and there's so many parking spots where it's just outrageous that people are creating an uproar. And the people who are creating the biggest stink is people who have money that um there's a gated community above the park where you know they um had the biggest pushback to um to take down the multi-use lane so um so i was working with our town council dorothy wong she um is a you know uh just like a really amazing person who um, is a, you know, she, she's a cyclist herself and a hiker and, you know, she, uh, a, a lot of the work that she does is like ex- extremely difficult work that she does. I, you know, it's very selfless work. She works very hard in consideration, the community and the long term of like, you know, promoting other, uh, like infrastructure for people outside of the car. And, and yeah, so you would think people would want infrastructure where they can safely travel outside of the car. Cause I see, you know, even on a ground level, you know, her and I would, um, pick up trash, like, like on the side, uh, on like the side of the roads. And, um, we would also just get on the ground level get feedback from the community of like what they think this multi-use, like, you know, the advantages or disadvantages of this multi-use lane. And a lot of times people that like, I'm seeing them use it, (laughs) but then they always say, but when I drive down this section, I feel like it's a little too narrow. And, 
but like <laughs> then that makes me think I'm like too narrow for what because you're afraid that you're going to run into like there's like these delineators they're just like these little posts that you can just run over them and it's totally fine you know it's just plastic and it just falls down you know and it's a very minimal barrier so that if cars do enter the multi-use lane they're not you know they're uh there's like some sort of obstruction to notify them that they're out of the lane of traffic and um and so my thinking is just like okay well it's getting you to slow down if you feel like it's narrow right because why are you going so fast in a neighborhood road and so um dorothy had um had promoted like during covid to have all these um slow streets signs um uh, working with the county to implement all of them because people especially in the foothills um during covid there's just so much more interest in outdoor and green spaces you know and so there's a park at the end of the street and then we have the you know angeles national forest like right here and so especially during the weekends you know it was it, it it's pretty busy <laughs> and people will just fly down like with their cars you know and not being mindful that you know people are trying to you know walk or ride you know safely without being you know feeling like they're um they're at risk and a lot of these slow street signs would get vandalized like people like even on uh i'm not sure if you're familiar with that app next door it's like a mm -hmm. social media platform for like neighborhoods but yeah. you know people would be complaining about these slow street signs and how they're in the way and it's just like no it's just a reminder for you to slow down and if you're if you feel like they're in the way, then you're probably driving too fast. And if you're hitting these signs, you're most likely going to hit a person too. And we do have like, you know, have like, you know, during Thanksgiving week, we had a fatality just a few blocks down, um, uh, like a, um, you know, uh, someone ha had got hit by a car and, you know, and that's, that's not an uncommon thing, like, unfortunately. And so, you know, the I think the biggest thing is just speaking up and also being active because if you know if we aren't trying to better the community the you know community that we live in like why would why would anyone care to make any different like different changes right yeah definitely well congratulations on the business doing well and Thank you. Building community <laughs> is such a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is. And I feel very fortunate to have like, um, you know, uh, you know, on a, a lot of different levels of working with people, not like a, not only in a professional level, but within all the volunteerism that I volunteer work that I do. And because um, I'm also on uh, the board of a trail building organization. Um, uh, earlier this year, um, I got appointed to be vice president of the Mount Wilson Bicycling Association. Um, and what we do is we uh, maintain and build uh, multi-use trails in the Angeles National Forest. And um, I feel fortunate for everyone that I work with on the board and um, being able to work together with um, trail advocacy and intertwining it with um, with, you know, bicycle advocacy um with the slow streets program as well and just working with you know m my my neighbors and my town council and other cyclists and and um that you know i hope that we can create like a a, a better world that we can envision where we can all cohesively exist here here so question for people who are listening and want to become more involved in bike riding, uh, do, most, do most locations in the country have organizations or um, any advice to folks? Yeah, um, I think a good place to start is, you know, maybe um, local bike shops and, um, you know, because... Uh, as well as reaching out to, you know, your town council person or um, appointed 
a city official. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that would probably be a good start. Okay. Um, and even like, you know, uh, with any community, I mean, even like vision zero is a nationwide like program that is trying to, um, you know, decrease, uh, car related fatalities. And there's like a lot of information there as well. Okay. Vision Zero. Well, I'll mm-hmm. put the notes for that um, at the end of the podcast. What is aspirational for you in terms of thinking about the future? Either your future or the future of this beautiful planet? Or is there anything that's sort of on your heart that you'd like to touch on or... Yeah, I think, you know, um, with anything, I feel like people, you know, we are so busy with, you know, being, living in civilization, you know, I think we are, all humans are inspired by nature, and we all need open and green spaces to, to thrive, and whether, you know, you just go for a walk or find a nearby park or, you know, just, I think just getting out and having, getting some fresh air, like does us a lot of good and will lead us places like, you know, mentally and physically that we, uh, we, we've, you know, never thought we would be in. And I feel like it'll lead you to places that you've just, you know, you'll just surprise yourself. Yeah, I read about an organization. Its mission is to create parks uh, nationwide that are no more than 10 minutes from any citizens. So all citizens have access to green spaces. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and even just planting trees, you know, and... Or planting plants and, uh, you know, there's a few organizations that we work with in our local community to um, help create green spaces and also sustainable, like, landscaping from alternatives of, like, grass, like, especially here in, in Southern California. Um, are you reading anything of interest, Esther? Um, I'm reading a lot, but nothing... <laughs> Out of interest, because, you know, I just do a lot of reading for the business, and it's just paperwork, but um, I wish I did read more. I'm guilty of not reading much <laughs> for fun. Well, maybe in the future you'll have more time to do but that. I'm, going, I'm looking forward to reading your book, though. <laughs> One question is, when you live from your heart which I think you're a person who, who does that very much. What shifts? Yeah, that's a good question because I feel like I think a lot with my heart and running a business. It's like, I feel like that is not typical because, you know, people are just looking at numbers constantly. Right. And I don't focus too much on the numbers so much, but the people, that make the company what it is. Cause I'm always, um, I have a lot of heart for everyone that I work with. And, uh, I, I, um, I want to create a good work environment where people can cohesively work. I get work is work, but you know, if we can make it a little bit better then you know, I hope it can be like a, a sustainable career for people. And, um, and so I'm always, you know, asking, you know, how are you feeling? Like, you know, where's your head at? Like, what, like, you know, do you have any ideas of like, you know, what do you think about this? You know? And so just getting people's involvement and just like really caring about, um, about people, not only like that's within the company, but anyone that's like involved, it's just, you know, I think, um, (laughs) having a heart and just think, you know, and not thinking about things like, too too deeply um i think creates like a more like like a long-term relationship any covid stories that you want to to share of 
something just seems like there's so many crazy things that, and not just, I mean, obviously a tremendous amount of, of tragedy and death, but even beyond that, the world mm-hmm. seems to have moved and changed in ways that people just never anticipated that it would. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it's really, um, you know, people have felt very isolated during this time. And I think um, people having this like um, new sense of discovery with outdoor spaces and nature is like really amazing. And, um, and being able to, um, understand yourself and other people I think has been a really big thing you know I know like uh, with COVID you know people are stressed and they put their stress and focus on things where that you know um, whether for better or worse you know I think more than anything you have to value yourself and the you know the people that you surround yourself with and, um, you know, especially with, you know, sickness and, you know, uh, people, loved ones that we've lost. And even with opposing views with like the vaccine, you know, is really huge. And, you know, unfortunately, like I know people who had to lose someone in order to um, shift their views on like modern medicine, you know. And it's not really that modern. Vaccines have been around for a really long time. And, you know, I think the stress and political, like, um, the political realm has, like, really skewed um, uh, people's perspective on things. Yeah, that's why I feel like doing the work of putting the tools out there so that people can learn how to connect both to themselves and when you connect with yourself, you will connect. All we are is connectivity. You know, just the fact that we're breathing, Mm -hmm. it's an ultimate connection to every being on the planet. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. I feel that it's so important to find ways to talk about these tools that's accessible for people. Yeah. Closed my print shop and decided to work on educate, putting educational tools out there. But I think that's led you to, to this point too. You know, I think the accumulation of your experiences, um, I think everyone has something to learn and teach with their life experiences. Well, anything else you want to add? It's been such a pleasure being being in time with I you. Know. <laughs> I know the, the the pleasure's all mine. You know, I feel very fortunate to have you in my life, and you know that we've maintained like such a amazing friendship over these years, and you know, um, and more many more years to come. When Robert and I were in New York, we were laughing because I said, oh, my God, do you remember when we went into Bergdorf Goodman's and there was Esther with her wig on? (laughs) It's pretty serendipitous, isn't it? (laughs) It was was really, really a fun moment. And then learning later how many people thought you would cut your hair. <laughs> You're like, no, just have a wig on. You know, I'm just keeping everyone on their toes. <laughs> Got to. That's what life is all about. <laughs> so, all right. Well, do, anything you want to add before we close it out? Um, you know, I hope everyone, you know, stays safe over the holidays. And it's just, you know appreciating and living in the present and, you know, just cherishing the people themselves and everyone that's around them and, you know, um, and not to be shy to reach out to people in their lives that they haven't talked to in a while. In a world so impacted by the effects of human confusion and suffering in which so many humans are not trained 
in the reality of our profound planetary connection. Esther's song stands out. I want to thank Esther for being on the show. Check out the bags that Esther's company, Roadrunner Bags, designs, manufactures, and sells. The link is in the show notes. If you would like to learn more about creative awareness and the practice of being, you'll find links in the show notes as well. And check out the other episodes in this series that include interviews and guided awareness sessions. Remember, we are all connected all the time.